I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Fear is powerful, and it makes people act irrationally and do really dumb things in pure reaction to that fear. Not the uh, cool, cool, clear thinking is usually best for everything, not the least of which is electoral politics. Fear of another McGovern permeated the Democratic Party in 2016 with the tremendous appeal of outsider, traditionally liberal populist Bernie Sanders. It scared the heck out of the big-moneyed party establishment, and they rigged the process to make sure there would not be another McGovern loss of 1972. In fact, what they got was far worse. Conventional wisdom was that no way could a Bernie Sanders win. A safe centrist like Hillary Clinton was a sure way into the White House. Well, our guest today argues that a Nixon win that year, 1972, was a fait accompli. Joshua Mound writes, any Democratic nominee was doomed in 1972. Modern election forecasting models based on variables like the state of the economy and the incumbent's approval ratings make clear, in retrospect, that Nixon was destined to win in a landslide. In an article entitled, What Democrats Still Don't Get About George McGovern, Joshua Mound argues the party took all the wrong lessons from his landslide loss to Richard Nixon in 72. It is really irksome when we take the wrong lessons from history. Yet it seems to happen more often than not. (laughs) On today's show, we'll look back to 1972 and look ahead to 2020. By revisiting that recent past and the trajectory of the Democrats since then, we have the opportunity to learn the right lessons and achieve meaningful victories in the coming 2020 presidential electoral cycle. Joshua Mount, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me. Joshua Mound is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Virginia. He holds a Ph.D. in history and sociology from the University of Michigan. His work has appeared in The New Republic, Dissent, and Jacobin. Well, again, thanks. In short, what happened has been that following McGovern's defeat, Democrats began running toward the center and haven't looked back, even though that center seems to have moved further and further to the right with each passing election. For the past 40 years, whenever a Democratic presidential hopeful has given off the slightest whiff of leftist anti-establishmentarianism, party leaders and mainstream pundits have invoked McGovern's name, he writes. You then write, the Democrats' fear of McGovernism is misplaced. End of quote. We Americans refused to learn the obvious lessons, say, from our war in Vietnam, and now we're in Afghanistan. And as we've seen again and again, conventional wisdom is often wrong. I'd like to start with two related questions. If conventional wisdom is wrong, why did he lose in 1972? And second, 
why do you say that with each passing decade, the types of voters drawn to McGovern's 1972 campaign have become larger and larger share of the American electorate, while the issues championed by McGovern have be- become more and more salient? Let's start with the first question. If it wasn't because he was too liberal, why did McGovern lose? Well, um, fundamentals models in political science usually focus on two things in determining um, what the incumbent party is likely to get in an election, and it's the economy and the approval rate of the incumbent. And while obviously liberals at the time didn't like that Nixon had high approval rates, he did, partly because he had done some things that had irked conservatives in his party, like embracing wage price controls and really focusing on fiscal stimulus to stoke the economy, making overtures to communist countries to kind of tone down the Cold War. So Nixon was really popular. A lot of Democrats and liberals didn't see that. And, you know, 72 was before we actually had some of the research in political science that we have today, seeing how important these sort of simple variables are in determining the election. So like 1932 for FDR or 1980 for Reagan or um, 2008 for Obama, there are certain elections where the incumbent is either so popular or so unpopular that you kind of know what the outcome is going to be beforehand. And really candidates in the opposing party can't do a lot to change those things. So, you know, what happens is you'll have a candidate that either wins or loses in one of those elections. And then, like all elections, people really overinterpret it, thinking that it had a lot to do with what the candidates did or didn't do. But In 1972, Democrats were doomed, just like in 2008, Republicans were doomed because the economy was good. The incumbent was, in the case of 1972, really popular. In the case of, you know, 2008, really unpopular. And, you know, there's a cottage industry of trying to look at specific elements of the candidates to see why they won or lost, when really the first thing we should do is think about what are the fundamentals of the economy and the popularity of the incumbent tell us was likely to happen, and then go from there. It would be nice if we could uh, figure that out. And you're right, the the measurements were not there in 1972, but they are there now. And under the second part of the question, uh, the types of voters drawn to McGovern's campaign have become a larger and larger share of the American electorate. It seems like the Republicans learned from 1964 when Barry Goldwater was crushed pummeled, destroyed, pounded into the sand by the alleged peace candidate Lyndon Johnson. What I find interesting is that instead of abandoning Goldwaterism, as you write, whereas the Democrats shifted away from McGovernism toward tepid centrism, Republicans ultimately embraced Goldwater's radical conservatism, end of quote. I remember when he was thought of as extreme right at the time. What was this, as you call it, Goldwater-tinged radicalism? What was the Goldwater platform that within a few decades would become the template for every GOP presidential campaign that followed? Well, I think it's important to put Goldwater in the context of where the Republican Party was in the early 1960s, which you're coming off of the Eisenhower era, and you have kind of a very moderate Republican who had albeit, you know, haltingly embraced civil rights. He had been moderate on economics. Um, His party had embraced Keynesian fiscal fiscal stimulus, hadn't really pushed any of the sort of 
large tax cuts for the rich and other things that we now associate with Republican economics. And this upset a lot of conservatives. They really wanted a more bellicose foreign policy. They wanted a more top-heavy, what we would now call supply-side economics. And they also didn't particularly like Richard Nixon, who obviously was the VP for Eisenhower and had run in 1960 and lost. So they sort of rallied behind Goldwater, who was embracing, you know, bringing the party to the right, being more confrontational with communist countries, resisting civil rights in the name of states' rights, and crucially cutting taxes for upper-income people, even if it caused deficits on the idea that growth would make up for the the resulting deficits, the idea that we've heard time and time again, including with Trump, that never seems to work out. And, you know, as you said, they got crushed on this platform in 1964. And the idea was for, you know, some mainstream Republicans that, you know, this is a horrible idea, we need to sort of tack back towards the center. And in many ways, that's what Nixon did in 1968 and 1972. But as you said, compared to McGovern, there were deep party activists, yes, people who were elected officials in the party, including Ronald Reagan, who had campaigned for Goldwater, who had given a very famous televised speech for Goldwater that gave many Republicans operative the idea that actually Reagan would be a better messenger for the Goldwater message because he was so much more telegenic, so much more charismatic. And these sort of, you know, deep activists and party officials were kind of biding their time, waiting for an opening to take over the party. And slowly they did in the years that followed 1964, even as sort of at the the presidential level, Nixon was in office. Then, of course, once Nixon leaves in disgrace after Watergate, they have their opening and they kind of take over the party almost in 1976 with Reagan nearly knocking off Ford in the Republican primary and then finally in 1980. And so, you know, there's this kind of deep conviction among hardcore Republicans of what the right side of the issues are and that the Republican Party should always be sort of pushing towards those issues and trying to bend the public will towards embracing those issues. And even if they can't, just kind of obfuscating what they really think in the elections, but still pursuing those <laughs> issues once they're in power. And I think that's, you know, a marked difference from what happened after McGovern mm-hmm. lost for Democrats, where you have Democratic operatives and party officials, many of whom weren't super thrilled about McGovern to begin with, who quickly sort of organize after the 1972 loss and say the reason we lost is because McGovern was too liberal. Right. He was, you know, too too friendly with things like, you know, gay rights, women's rights, too progressive on economics, too much of a dove on foreign policy, and so we have to tack the opposite direction. And that narrative really dominated the Democratic Party, I would say, maybe up until the wake of Hillary Clinton's loss, where it's it's partly starting to lose some currency. Um and that's that's completely different from the Republican Party because just you didn't have a lot of officials in the party and party activists believing that McGovern was right and eventually we need to, you know, implement the ideas that he sort of pushed in 1972 the same way you had party officials and activists in the Republican Party who felt that way about Goldwater. So there's this big difference between where Goldwater becomes a prophetic loser mm. who's vindicated 
you know, 16 years later, when Reagan wins on almost the exact same platform that that um, Goldwater had run on in 1964, it's completely the opposite in the Democratic Party. No one was really embracing, and I would argue still today, yes. is embracing a lot of the McGovern platform ideas from 1972. It was just sort of completely written out of the party as a viable option. So interesting and and fascinating, really, how the Republican Party, though destroyed, their candidate was destroyed in 1964. Somehow they, they picked up what he was talking about, largely because, as you describe, it was related to, to movements. And the Democratic Party didn't get that. What what McGovern was talking about was related to movements as well, but they just shied away from it. And I think it's fascinating. You say, today, every Republican candidate prays at the altar of Reagan. In reality, they're genuflecting at the shrine of Goldwater. And to refresh some memories, in 1968, Nixon employed, thinking of movements, the Southern strategy. What was... That what that was about was picking up the right-wing cultural populism of George C. Wallace as traditional cultural conservatives abandoned the Democratic Party after the civil rights laws passed by Lyndon Johnson. So Nixon picked up on that, and, and it certainly uh, helped him. And uh, just picking up various different movements within the universe of people that might vote Republican. And I think it's it's interesting you write that Goldwater was perhaps the most consequential loser in American politics. The same could not be said of McGovern. And it strikes me that McGovern, as with Goldwater, was way ahead of his time. But please tell us about that coalition, the what nascent, just beginning interest groups, movements uh, connected with McGovern and where they may be now within the uh, mainstream of uh, democratic politics. Right. Well, I think it's easy to forget how much grassroots activism on the left there was in the 1970s. Um, kind of the popular narrative of what happens is you have all this activism in the 1960s, and then Nixon gets elected, and he gets reelected, and it sort of just all goes away. And in reality, it didn't all go away. You still had you know, very vibrant oh, yeah. social movements, many of which didn't even get started until the early 70s and right. sort of the national consciousness, um, environmental movement, women's rights movement, LGBT movement, um, and a really resurgent kind of democratic unionism trying to you know get unions away from some of the um, archaic or corrupt union bosses, and you have a lot of sort of progressive um, local grassroots groups related to um, Nader and Acorn and sort of different organizations like that, Saul Alinsky groups, that were sort of percolating, you know, throughout the entire country and didn't really believe that Nixon's election in either 68 or 72 meant that, you know, the country was inexorably going to the right and nothing could be done about it. So, you know, you had these these grassroots groups and these impulses that motivated McGovern's campaign and really didn't even go away after McGovern's campaign, no, for sure. but they didn't find a lot of favor with um, the Carter White House and certainly after the party kind of moves to the right with the DLC oh, yeah. and um, other sort of more conservative centrist Democrats who had argued that McGovern 
and his liberal policies were the reason that the party lost in 72, they do sort of, you know, eventually start to wither away. But all of these groups really gave energy to, to McGovern, and a lot of what they stood for, even if some of the groups like ACORN, you know, have gone away, unions have declined a lot, um, are, their, their concerns are still very much here. So now you have, you know, Democrats in the primaries and in the general election very much more relying on the votes of people of color, LGBT voters, and they're more open with those issues than they have been really since McGovern in 1972. And so on that side of things, you see a sort of prophetic element of what McGovern did. And on the other side of things, which I think is often not discussed when we think about McGovern, is he was very deliberative and strategic about trying to hold on to as many working-class white voters as possible through his use of economic populism. And really, he couldn't have won either the Wisconsin primary or come in a very close second in the Ohio primary had he not been able to rely on those voters. And what he did was focus on issues of economic inequality, tax loopholes for the rich, things that still resonate today and I think are still very effective when Democrats use them. And certainly in 2020, with this recent Republican tax cut, you know, if you hammer on Trump as someone who, in contrast to kind of his populist message or pseudo-populist message, you know, that he was different from average Republicans, now we can see from his policies, no, he pursued top-heavy tax cuts just like George W. Bush or just like Reagan. So, you know, these things that, that McGovern was doing of trying to kind of thread the needle of keeping, you know, some blue-collar whites, but also embracing a lot of what we would call um, identity politics or sort of, you know, issue-based, identity-based groups and bring them into the Democratic Party is, is really what you hear Democrats talking about now mm-hmm. as the way that they can put together a winning coalition in 2020 and beyond. Yeah, it's uh, it's not easy being ahead of one's time. I'll tell you, it's really, really difficult. But he, I think uh, we're making the argument that, that he was. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. With your help, we are keeping democracy alive. And our guest today is uh, Joshua Mound, who's written for uh, The New Republic, an article called What Democrats Still Don't Get About George McGovern. The party took all the wrong lessons from his landslide loss to Nixon in 72. And I think it's it's interesting, you know, talk about different various uh, uh, demographics within the country that might uh, vote Democrat. As you say, the second prong of McGovern's strategy was to woo poor and working class whites in the North away from conservative Democrat George Wallace. That was economic populism as compared to the right wing uh, cultural populism that uh, led to uh, uh, Trump's winning. That economic populism was abandoned after the loss of 1972. Talk about that a little bit, the long-term effects of, of the party abandoning that economic populism. Well, I think one important element of what McGovern was doing is, is another example of something that's oddly come back around after being out of the public consciousness for decades is that he pushed a program that was called a Democrat, which we would now think of as sort of a guaranteed annual income, which if you read our excerpts from or the whole thing of Hillary Clinton's um, recent book, she nearly embraced a universal basic income in her 2016 campaign. 
And now you have sort of, you know, tech people who are interested in it as kind of, you know, an alternative to the current safety net. Um, but that, you know, was viewed as a step too far by a lot of Democrats in 1972, even though I would argue what McGovern cleverly did was roll that idea into a critique of tax cuts for the rich, and he paid attention to regressive taxes that we don't often talk about, like payroll taxes, state and local taxes, um, and made the case that this guaranteed income, since it would go to everyone, would actually help sort of working-class people, too, not just the poor, because it would be a de facto tax cut and offset some of the regressive state and local taxes and payroll taxes that are more important for working-class people than for rich people in terms of the distribution of the tax burden. Um, and, you know, so he had ways, I think, of taking really radical ideas and making them more palatable that doesn't really comport with our image of McGovern as this wild-eyed radical who didn't know how to appeal to anyone outside mm. of kind of the liberal elite or university towns. Um, and some of those ideas and ways of talking about things, I think, are getting more traction now even though we don't associate it with McGovern. And as you said, it, it, it didn't really, he didn't really get credit for how clever a lot of that was. And it fell out of favor afterwards, but usually only when Democrats were in office. While they didn't embrace, you know, a guaranteed income again, certainly Jimmy Carter, if you go back and look at campaign commercials he ran, he ran very populist-oriented campaign commercials where he was sitting in the woods on a stump and talking directly to the can, uh, camera mm-hmm. about tax loopholes for rich people. This is something, right, that every Democratic candidate has kind of come back to over and over, particularly when it comes to taxes or the idea that the government in general is stacked in favor of the rich and against average people. But often when they get into office, they don't actually end up sort of pursuing those policies. Bill Clinton being kind of classic example where he had elements of economic populism in 1992, but famously when he got in office, he met with Alan Greenspan and sort of other economic uh-huh. advisors, and they told him, oh, you need to focus on fixing the deficit and growth, and you can't actually pursue any of these populist ideas. Um, so you have this kind of love-hate relationship with economic populism that Democrats have, where I think on some level, a lot of them understand it's key to winning, but yeah. then they don't actually follow through with it once they're in office. Well, it's about pleasing their funders, oftentimes. And that's one thing that, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders is known for, you know, his average contribution of $27 and raising a ton of money from that. And, you know, the conventional wisdom of the Democratic Party, which Hillary Clinton certainly did, is, you know, cozy up to the wealthy people, the wealthiest people, the Wall Street people, and they'll give you big money and make fundraising a lot easier. But I was impressed by your revelation of McGovern's uh, tack on this, his successful fundraising, which sounds a little bit like Bernie Sanders. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, he had kind of done something that that um, conservative activists had really started to pioneer which was, you know, prior to online fundraising and things like that, direct mail on the idea that you could sort of do um, interest group mailings and ask for small donations for large numbers of people and that that could really fund your grassroots organization or your political campaign in a way where you could avoid sort of, you know, mainstream party funding or big donor funding. 
And yes, you said McGovern was, you know, ahead of his time uh, on that score, and I think really did prefigure um, things like Sanders' campaign or a little bit before that, Howard Dean's campaign, um, where you saw Democrats now kind of tapping into small donations as a way to avoid kind of the party machinery and sort of the typical large donors that most mainstream candidates had to rely on. I want to just step back for just a second. We were talking about McGovern's thoughts on universal basic income, which a lot of Democrats, you know, mainstream Democrats were very, very skittish about. It sounded, you know, too radical. But as you describe it, it has a tinge of libertarianism to it. And more and more people, Republicans even, uh, conservative, not right wing, but conservative people are talking about universal basic income now. How, and and I'm just thinking about uh, appealing to uh, you know working people and connecting with those people that frankly we didn't do well in the 2016 election. I wonder about that right now as we move into uh, 2020 and and how that idea has a tinge of libertarianism. Yeah, I think there's a, you know a big debate going on right now in the party um, and among even sort of liberal activists and progressive activists whether a guaranteed income or universal basic basic income or a guaranteed jobs program is the way to go as sort of the you know one of the big new ideas for democrats even though in reality neither is that new um with McGovern and the universal basic income and then you had the Humphrey Hawkins act in the mid 1970s that was sort of a, a proto um guaranteed jobs idea that that got watered down and and never really came to fruition um and, you know, so each of these ideas, I think, have different adherence. I'm, I'm a little more um, excited about and optimistic about the idea of a basic income than a guaranteed jobs program for a variety of reasons. But I think, you know, the issue is you have to really think carefully about how you frame so it's issues of sort of, you know, welfare broadly construed and issues of deservingness and undeservingness when we think about government benefits. Um, and there's a, there is a real risk and a real problem that right. something like the universal basic income can be viewed as welfare. And I think that's something that a lot of guaranteed jobs people think, oh, well, we should try away from the universal basic income because it's money for nothing and that's welfare and Republicans will slander it as such. And if we have a guaranteed job, then, you know, people are earning the benefit. It's, you know, work-related. But my sort of worry about that is then you're kind of reinforcing the idea that people only deserve things if they're working. And I think that makes it harder to make a case for, you know, non-cash benefits for non-working people, including Medicare for all and other things like that. And so we're reinforcing the Republican narrative. And the other side of it is that, as we've sort of seen time and time again, Republicans can frame anything as welfare. (laughs) So, you know, with the 1996 welfare reform that Clinton famously passed, saying that this is the end of welfare as we know it, and it did end. Um, the welfare, the cash welfare program that had existed yes. really in various forms since FDR, and it expanded pretty dramatically in the 1960s. And the idea of eliminating that in the 1996 Welfare Reform Act is, well, now we've gotten rid of this program that's our Achilles heel. Republicans will never again be able to use the welfare queen 
idea against Democrats, and this will sort of eliminate our greatest weakness. Well, what ended up happening is Republicans just defined other programs as welfare programs that used to be less controversial. So now, you know, food stamps are welfare and all kinds of other programs that cannot be considered welfare are sort of the poster boy for Republican critiques of the safety net. And, you know, so I think that there's an element where once you concede something to Republicans, they're not going to give up. They're just going to advance the ball further down the field and redefine what welfare is. And really that's, you know, Paul Ryan's entire existence has been predicated around starting to sort of revive this welfare queen idea, but in, but embracing different programs as emblematic of welfare that used to not be, you know, strictly defined as welfare, which used to be just cash assistance. I do find it interesting that I've heard it said for many, many years, if if there's real Republicans and imitation Republicans, people vote for the real Republicans every time. You can't out-Republican Republicans. And the whole libertarian aspect of the universal basic income, see if I get this right, is that there's no government bureaucracy there. Just everybody, everybody gets a certain amount, and they can they can decide themselves. They don't have to jump through hoops and face all these, you know, just government bureaucracies. So that may have that appeal as well. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with Joshua Mound, who has written What What Democrats Still Don't Get About George McGovern. The party took all the wrong lessons from his landslide loss to Richard Nixon in, in 72. Uh, it, one of the most important speeches of any campaign is the nominee's acceptance speech. Lots of people watch it at the convention, and it sets the tone, and it fires people up. Tell us, if you would, about the near-tragic staging of McGovern's nomination acceptance speech. And could it have been deliberate? People don't know about that. They weren't around at that time. Well, one of the kind of admirable things, I think, about the 1972 convention is that um, Democrats had learned from just the absolute chaos and what was later termed a police riot in the 1968 uh, Democratic convention in the streets of Chicago, where you had, you know, um, daily Chicago PD kind of beating up Mm -hmm. anti-war protesters absolute chaos outside the convention and then chaos inside the convention as people who were supporters of uh, Eugene McCarthy and the deceased Robert Kennedy kind of trying to wrestle the nomination away from Hubert Humphrey, who was viewed as just kind of continuing Lyndon Johnson's Vietnam policies and not being a legitimate candidate because, you know, prior to the party reforms that came a few years later, you didn't really need to win primaries to win the nomination in 1968, you could just have party insiders back you and kind of anoint you. Um, So they instituted all these reforms to make the primaries more democratic, and they also wanted to make the convention more democratic. So you have, you know, lots of people giving speeches, the ability to bring lots of sort of motions and things like that, and that just kind of, you know, drew the the process out so long that McGovern ended up giving his acceptance speech at three in the morning, and really no one saw it. And it was, a, you know, I think a, a great acceptance speech that would have dispelled for a lot of people the kind of image of McGovern as a wild-eyed radical. But 
it was sort of, you know, one of many kind of missteps that happened almost immediately um, after McGovern steered the nominations. You have sort of this brilliant primary campaign yes. where he has this great two, two-pronged strategy that's able to secure the nomination, but then as soon as he wins the nomination, there are sort of various mishaps and fumbles that happen, which, you know, going back to the beginning of the conversation, in the end, probably didn't matter that much because he was going to lose by a large margin to Nixon anyhow. But certainly, I think in terms of giving ammunition to critics of McGovern who would, you know, blame his loss on his ideology and things like that, that the missteps certainly, you know, helped them advance their counterargument after the election. And I still think, if I remember correctly, his slogan of come home America, I think that can have some appeal. And you know, simple messages. The Democrats just don't seem to get that. I mean, what the heck was the message from Hillary Clinton? Uh, I'm Hillary Clinton. You know, what was the message? Bernie had a message. He, McGovern had a message. And the Republicans are excellent, you know, with Make America Great Again. That captures the imagination. One aspect of national campaigns that seems to have worsened greatly since 72 is slogans like that with very few easy to remember words a whole campaign is painted and you can't get away from that there was acid abortion and amnesty talk about that please and its effects in terms of cultural conservatism and and how that was uh, used and its power well so the irony there is that you you have right this three a's the acid amnesty abortion critique of mcgovern that sort of became omnipresent in the campaign. And um, Hugh Scott, who was the, the Republican Senate minority leader, kind of, you know, was, was given credit for that, or it was usually people attributed it to him. But really, um, the, the genesis of the quote was, people don't know that McGovern is for amnesty, abortion, and the legalization of pot. And it was said by an unnamed senator to the press, and ironically, that unnamed senator was Thomas Eagleton, who McGovern would end up picking as his Whoa. vice president. Oh my. So, you know, I mean, this is kind of basic stuff where besides not doing sort of diligent background on, yeah. um, on his sort of issues with mental health, which I think today we would rightly, you know, I would hope not yeah. condemn and it wouldn't give people heebie-jeebies like it did at that time in 1972 <laughs> when they found out that Thomas Eagleton had been institutionalized. So, you know, they had that element that they overlooked, you know, I think you could say was kind of high-minded. We shouldn't judge someone for that. But on the other hand, not knowing that the person you're selecting for your vice presidential nomination was slandering you to the press and giving one of the greatest attack lines of the entire campaign to the opposition is just like, you know, a basic error of research. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think that that three A's phrase kind of stuck with Democrats, yes. you know, ever since in some sense, because you have Roe v. Wade, obviously in 1973, then which elevates abortion to sort of a major culture wars issue subsequently. And ever since then, we obviously have had issues of legalization of marijuana and sort of other drug policy. And it seemed much more, I think, you know, present and dangerous to a lot of kind of middle-class whites with yeah, their, their kids, fear. you know, experimenting with drugs in the 1960s. And so Amnesty at that time was talking about Vietnam War <laughs> resistors. Obviously, Amnesty in terms of immigration has now become, yeah, right. you know, a major kind of battlefront in um, 
the culture wars today. So it's it's kind of amazing how a lot of those issues have you know resonated and were encapsulated in that one phrase. And you know we need to to figure out that just a very few words and that that painted it. People just that was it. That was their impression of it, and uh, it scared people. You know the cultural pop populism that helped get Trump elected was fear of the other, fear of the unknown. I mean for Trump it's a, it's a fear of you know, it's it's a racial fear, fear of the dark-skinned immigrants coming here. But I get a little bit off here. I'm, I have some feelings about Trump, for sure. Now, Well, no, I, I think ahead. that you're absolutely right, though, about the simplicity of slogans. And I think this is a disconnect between what kind of what we would call wonks or sort of yeah, right. policy pundits kind you of want to see from Democratic candidates and what actually translates well to the public. Yes. So... You know, you mentioned Hillary Clinton. If you went to her website, there were sort of long, detailed treatises on every issue imaginable, you know, a jillion tabs on her website with detailed policy white papers on everything you ever wanted to know. McGo- or, sorry, excuse me, Trump's website had virtually nothing of substance on it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that means that policy doesn't matter. You should certainly think through policies, have good plans, but you can't make that the center of your campaign. That's something you have in your back pocket for when you're elected. How are you going to actually institute what you promise? But when it comes to campaigning, you want to say simple things that are compelling and repeat them a lot. And sort of a knock that a lot of wonks had against Sanders is he just repeats the same things over and over again. And the reality is that was a strength, I think, of what he was doing and the strength of a lot of campaigns because if you're a political junkie, you might read, you know, dozens and dozens of Sanders articles and watch all the debates, and so you've heard these things a million times, right. and it can start to grade on you. Right. But if you're an average voter, you might, you know, read a handful of articles and watch one of the debates or just see highlights on the evening news or, you know, CNN or whatever. And so the more times you say those sort of compelling lines, the better chance that the average person is going to be able to encounter them, rather than if you have scattershot campaign with really long sort of treatises. There's no kind of thread overarching idea that kind of people can grab onto the way they could with, you know, something like Trump's, um, you know, phrase that he repeated over and over again and kind of was evocative of something that I think contained a lot of regressive and kind of scary things, but also could be read very ambiguously for people to take what they want. And in some ways that's, you know, an ideal message that Democrats would do well to figure out how to kind of group all of their policies under sort of an overarching banner, you know, related issues of sort of fairness or standing up to the powerful or, you know, whatever they want a particular idea they want to convey that they can kind of make an umbrella for everything. Yeah. That's much more important than having super detailed white papers on your website. Oh my goodness. I know. And it's gotten, you know, people have even less time now with all the uh, the internet that obviously didn't exist back in 1972. So, I I think it's somewhat amusing. I saw Bernie Sanders speak in 2004. He gave basically the same speech. That's not a bad thing, you know, because it, it right. connected with people. And I, my own personal suggestion would be Medicare for all, simple, straightforward. Everybody gets it. But that's looking ahead to, to 2020. I don't know if the party will do it. They probably won't because the insurance industry doesn't like Medicare for all. But I would think that economic populism is still pretty strong. 
Now, back to McGovern, he was certainly in the mold of the traditional liberal FDR Democrats. And ever since the New Deal went into effect, Republicans have consistently sought to destroy it. You suggest something new called neoliberals rose up right after McGovern's defeat and carried on the Republicans' attack on the New Deal. We've all heard the phrase neoliberals. I'm not sure if everybody understands what what that is. What what are the the neoliberals, and how, in what way were they a reaction to McGovern? Well, so I think that the part of the confusion about neoliberals or neoliberalism is people use it in a lot of different ways, and it's it mirrors in some ways the the distinction between sort of when people in Europe say liberal, they mean conservative, essentially, like Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher. But when we say liberal in the U.S., it means FDR. So you have that sort of layered on to the neoliberal, you know, um, framing where people get very confused about, well, why are we sort of lumping, um, lumping Bill Clinton and Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan together if you're using it in that larger sense, which basically means kind of a post-1970s turn toward more free market-oriented, quote-unquote, economics, you know, undermining the welfare state. We should take things out of the hands of sort of the public sector and put it into the private sector. So that's sort of the meta-level use of neoliberal can kind of embrace both Republicans and Democrats in the U.S., just who in general were more favorable towards market-oriented ideas and were much more critical of government programs and in the U.K., things like public ownership. But the way I use it in the article is actually specifically regarding Democratic activists who called themselves neoliberals, many of them. Other of them ended up calling themselves New Democrats um, or calling themselves Atari Democrats, which seems odd now. Ataris are no longer the cutting edge of technology, but at the time they were. Um, And what, what these neoliberals in this sort of specific party sense stood for and what meant was that they thought, right, that by the 1970s, the ideas of the New Deal had sort of run their course, and that the stagflation we had in the 1970s meant that, you know, the government had gone too far and it kind of wrecked the the economy, and things like industrial manufacturing jobs and the unions that went along with them were, you know, archaic, and we didn't need them anymore, and likewise that you know, things like New York's bankruptcy and, you know, other sort of fiscal crises in major cities showed that public sector unions were poisonous and bad. Mm -hmm. And so they really thought, you know, we want to get rid of the New Deal or at least, you know, heavily scale back kind of everything that Democrats had stood for since the New Deal and replace it with a more, you know, quote-unquote pro-market pro-business ideology where, you know, you would cut taxes for investment and unleash the public or at least the the private sector and you'd sort of focus on technology and sort of all these sort of, you know, futuristic forward-thinking kind of ideas. So, you know, this does overlap a lot, obviously, with what Reagan and other Republicans were saying. It was a move to the right for Democrats, but they sort of framed it as if they were going to somehow use these conservative means for more liberal ends, which personally I, I don't, no. I don't think it was accurate, no. but um, you know, they, they were very vocal after McGovern lost as kind of linking 
McGovern's loss to his embrace of, you know, quote-unquote, big government policies. And just like Watergate kind of created a vacuum in the Republican Party into which the sort of Reagan crowd that had idealized Goldwater stepped, you had kind of an opening for neoliberals after McGovern's loss where, because of erroneously reading election results, as a referendum on particular candidates rather than as a reflection of underlying economic realities and political realities. They said, oh, we could have won in 72. The reason we didn't win was because of McGovern's liberalism. So we need to re-examine this and, and therefore tack to the right and kind of become more like Republicans, essentially. Yeah, and that's worked out so well, right? And uh, if again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, Keeping Democracy Live is a show. Our guest today is Joshua Mound. We're talking about an article he wrote, What Democrats Still Don't Get About George McGovern, how, you know, we just don't learn from history. And, you know, the whole Democratic Leadership Council, not a lot of people have learned about that. That's the, the new Democrats who Bill Clinton was the darling of the DLCers. And I wonder, you know, what have been the results of the DLC New Democrat uh, positions on average Americans economically. W- what do you know about that? I, I, I don't think it's been particularly good, and I wonder if there may be fertile ground there for you know, more traditional Democrats to plow. Well, I think part of what ended up happening was, besides a lot of candidates after McGovern embracing various elements of kind of the neoliberal mantra Carter did a lot of deregulation. Carter signed a capital gains tax cut that, you know, overwhelmingly went to the richest few percent. Um, and, you know, even even Mondale, even though he was viewed as a liberal at the time, focused on balanced budgets in 1984. Dukakis was very much in the neoliberal mold. And, and prior to his loss, neoliberals loved, them, loved him. Then, of course, when he lost, they had to say it was because he was too liberal. But really, he was a you know a fiscal conservative in Massachusetts, and he was very much you know a pro technology, pro business yes. kind of Democrat who wasn't interested in sort of grassroots activism or unions or any sort of downwardly redistributive policies. And when Clinton wins in, in 1992, as I said before, he he kind of runs on this really odd mix of DLC neoliberalism with some kind of traditional democratic populist rhetoric and a few actual substantive policy ideas thrown in. Um, And that was partly a reflection of the fact that he had some more traditional liberal advisors and some more, you know, new Democrat neoliberal advisors. But immediately after he wins, sort of all the the liberal stuff falls by the wayside because of this famous meeting that he has with um, Greenspan and some of his other, you know, more conservative economic advisors saying that, you know, Reagan had created these huge deficits. If we don't do anything about it, the bond market vigilantes, as they were called, will drive up interest rates and they'll strangle the economy. And essentially, you know, you don't have the money to do any of the infrastructure things and stuff that you promised in the campaign. But what you can do is, focus on being a fiscal conservative and balancing the budget and that, you know, this will unleash sort of economic greatness and, you know, you'll, right. you'll be sort of a, a new, new Democrat and, and sort of redefine the party. Um, 
And to a certain extent, it seemed like that worked because it just so happened that the internet, you know, rose to prominence in the 90s, which, you know, I think you could say maybe Clinton didn't do anything to harm, but was obviously a longer term, you know, sort of uh, intellectual and technological development that he, he can't really claim credit for. And things that he did do, though, during his presidency that I think really did harm working people and harm Democrats were things like, you know, push through NAFTA, which was a trade agreement that George H.W. Bush had actually done most of the negotiations for and which I believe a majority in the House of Democrats opposed. Um, And, you know, he really instead for, for NAFTA and for some other ideas just relied upon Republicans in Congress to pass things with sort of a minority of conservative Democratic support, you know, over the objections of more liberal members of his party. So besides that, he also, as I mentioned before, eliminates welfare um, as it existed at that time, and which is called AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, and replaced it with our now sort of pseudo-welfare system called TANIF, T-A-N-I-F, which has sort of its time, strict time limits and work requirements and is sort of very hard to get and also gives states a lot of leeway to be even more stingy with the program. And he also eventually kind of like in Amir Carter signed a capital gains tax cut late in his presidency, which offset some of the rollback of um, the Reagan tax cuts that he had sort of undertaken early in his presidency. So, you know, there were a lot of things that Clinton did that looked very much like what Reagan had done before right. and looked very much like what George W. Bush would do later. And, I, you know, really harmed the Democrats both substantively because it the pocketbooks sure. of average voters yes. and because things like NAFTA really made it seem like there was no difference between the parties on issues like fair trade and sort of trade-related job loss and things like that. And that's no way to win. I'm from Youngstown, Ohio, and big steel producing center, you know, classic Rust Belt town, and, and something like NAFTA really resonated for, for people there. You can argue that, you know, other trade deals would have accomplished the same thing, or, you know, permanent normalized trade relations with China, which Clinton did later in his campaign, you know, that variations of these things maybe would have happened otherwise, or that, you know, some elements of it were good. But it really did harm a lot of people in terms of yes. jobs, and certainly in terms of the appearance of what Democrats cared about was kind of catastrophic. It really muddied the waters from, you know, a clear dis- distinction between sort of Republicans yes. are for multinational corporations shipping your jobs overseas and Democrats aren't. You really couldn't make that argument right. after NAFTA and after the China trade deal under Clinton, because now, you know, the Democrats had kind of embraced, embraced a lot of what thing. sort of free market Republicans were already saying. And and really, they've had Democrats, I mean, Democrats have had this kind of scattershot approach since then, where Obama ran in 08 promising to negotiate NAFTA. There are videos of him in debates and stuff promising this, didn't do anything about it. And, you know, that opened the door for Trump to kind of make that critique however many decades, you know, too late in some sense that he was making this this critique of really old trade deals. But, you know, he had some credibility that where Hillary Clinton, even though she sort of belatedly come around to criticizing these deals, yeah. you know, didn't. And so I think, you know, 
that's just one example of kind of the ways that the new Democrat kind of mentality ended up really muddying the waters and, and, and made it difficult for Democrats to make clear distinctions between themselves and Republicans on kind of redistributive populist economic issues. And it does seem that, amazingly enough, the Democratic leadership, including the DNC and certainly Hillary Clinton, turned their backs on a traditional Democratic base in trying to be, you know, Republican light. I don't think that works. And I, I find it interesting that McGovern himself wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post where he said, uh, growth continues to be concentrated at the top, not among those in the middle or below. The Democratic Party has lost the confidence of the American people, not because it is too liberal, but because it has neither kept faith with the historic values of liberalism nor defended those values to the public. I sense that it's a big mistake to just turn our backs on our base. And full disclosure, I supported McGovern and worked with his campaign in 1984 and actually had the incredible honor of becoming a personal friend. I love this line. It's hard to view the democratic trends of both the Democratic Party's electoral coalition and the country as a whole as anything other than George McGovern's revenge. In what ways does, as you say, McGovern's message on economic inequality and the political power of the rich seem prophetic now? Well, I think he was very much ahead of his time in focusing on inequality, which is something that you know he actually talked and wrote a lot about in 1972, which at the time, it, it was kind of a new development. It was really in the late 1960s, early 1970s, that the inequality started, you know, increasing again, basically through the late 60s, early 70s, where income inequality starts to decrease. And so, you know, there are great sort of artifacts from this time period of like Life magazine spreads on how CEOs live. And compared to today, they're living in in this Life magazine article from the 50s, I believe, in very modest houses, right? And it's kind of like the George Romney versus Mitt Romney transformation. If you know sort of what George Romney's life looked like and what his house in Bloomfield Hills outside of Detroit looked like versus sort of Mitt Romney's, you know, many houses, all mansions all over the country, you know, you can actually see sort of a glimpse of how dramatically income inequality has changed. So, you know, McGovern, I think, along with some kind of progressive economists were already sounding the alarm by the time you get to 1972. You know, it's only progressively oh, gotten right. worse, oh, much worse since then. You know, it's difficult to talk about something like inequality well in the context of a campaign. Mm, but I think Bernie did a good job of sort of crystallizing it into simple terms. I think that you can take an issue like inequality and connect it to really tangible things, whether they're economic stuff, you know, there's an opening, I think, for an intelligent Democrat to kind of make a broader critique of kind of conservative politics that kind of lumps a lot of things under a banner of kind of, you know, fairness and, and justice and, in, and combating inequality. And, you know, McGovern is a good model for that because I think he early on understood that this was going to be a salient issue. And it's about connecting, too. And we're running out of time, but I have to say, I think... McGovern was very much ahead of his time on health care reform, on foreign policy, on his plans to rebuild the infrastructure. Those would be very popular today. I find it curious 
that so many DNC party leaders today still insist that the Hillary Clinton direction is the way to go, yet they run from McGovern. He had no chance, as you say, no chance. It was a foregone conclusion, yet she should have won easily but lost. I think that partly it was because Trump was sort of seemingly so bad that people started to think it was a slam dunk, where in 1972, even if McGovern's, you know, ups with the VP and all that cost him a few percent, he was already going to lose, you know, in a landslide regardless. And one of the things I think is instructive of thinking about those recent elections is the fact that the only one that the Democrats won was the 2012 election. And that was the election most clearly showed the power of a sort of overarching message that kind of focused on kind of fairness and yes. a kind of populist us versus them rhetoric for Democrats, where you had Obama kind of expertly turn Mitt Romney, who had been, you know, a moderate Republican, and turned him into kind of Scrooge McDuck. You know, <laughs> he became like the, the embodiment of everything wrong with the 1% today and everything wrong with in income inequality today and income stagnation for average people and sort of rapacious Wall Street. That was such a great campaign. That was an example of a Democrat looking at what was going on and realizing that Running a moderate campaign that kind of tax to the center is not going to work here. Yep. We need to do something to kind of stoke the resentment of people <laughs> like Mitt Romney and sort of frustrations with issues of inequality and really kind of polarize you know, the electorate in a way that, that helps Democrats rather than wait for Republicans to polarize the electorate you know, with racism and sort yes. of different things that, that really end up hurting Democrats. And every other one of those elections, Democrats lost largely because they were Democrats who were running towards the center, trying to yep. minimize differences between themselves and Republicans and the 47 percent rhetoric. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of all the stuff that Trump ended up saying much more loudly and much more, you know, vulgarly already existed in sort of Republican rhetoric. And so I think that the Hillary campaign really overestimated. Yes. It's not enough to be Trump against was that. going to, you know, offend a lot of those suburban white moderates because they've kind of already made peace with the racism and the sexism yes. and other elements of Trump in past Republican candidates who had just said it a little bit nicer. Well, we've gone over our time. Thank you so much. And I do believe McGovernism is the future of the Democratic Party. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Just one more Up with the blues, pull myself out.